Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in David Pell, shall we? Epic CIO and Portfolio Manager. David, great to have you with us. Thank you. The issues on your radar right now, what are they? Well, I think last year was just too driven by valuation. I mean, we had a good year from an earnings point of view. It was high single digits, which is pretty good for the U.S. economy. But, you know, to get a 20-something, 25% uh, return, it's valuation. That is going to be hard to continue unless rates continue to go down. And it really looks like we're in a fairly stable environment. And in fact, the market has gone from a moderate to being on the expensive side. And there are specific pockets of excess for sure in speculative stocks. If you look at companies that don't earn money, they've actually done better. That is a bad sign. It really goes back to 1999. So this year should be driven by earnings. You want companies that can be profitable, and it's probably just going to be a single-digit return year. Dare I say, has Apple, a company like Apple, yeah. become a speculative stock? Yeah, interestingly, we have owned it since the founding of our firm in 2004. And for almost all that time, Apple has grown faster than the market, but sold at a discount. Last year, sales declined, earnings declined, and the stock almost doubled. So something happened in the psyche of the market, and we sold the stock. You sold the stock. When did yeah. you sell the stock, David? In mid-year. So it had already rallied about 25 30%, which we thought was the fair value. And it just kept going. Shares outstanding are down 20% since 2015. The buyback program is absolutely massive. There's yeah. some people listening yeah. right now, holding on to the name right. and saying, you know what, David, you're wrong. The buybacks will continue. The shares outstanding will continue to go down. I want to carry on holding this stock. Why shouldn't they? It's not that it's a bad company. It's just the valuation at this point assumes a double-digit growth rate, and the growth is all coming from return of capital. But how much are we just back to the TINA trade? There is no alternative with the Fed uh, potentially cutting rates once more this year. That's what's being priced into the market. I mean, that makes valuations look very different than they have historically. Uh, so for that point, uh, Apple is now more expensive than Google, which has higher margins, double digit growth. It's growing about 20 percent top and bottom line, and it's cheaper than Apple. So there are alternatives. And then we get to financials, which are the cheapest sector of the market at 10 to 12 times earnings and free cash flow the way we would look at it. And they're returning 100 percent of capital. B of A literally is returning 100 percent. And so if you take well, the dividend plus the earnings growth and the share buyback, you almost get a double-digit return without any valuation. Yeah. Still I want to expand on that. David Pro with us with yeah. Epic Investments. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio, Boston, Washington, and New York as well, and San Francisco in a very early morning, and of course on Sirius XM Channel 119, and across Bloomberg Television uh, today. David Pearl, yeah. uh, I, I, I consider where you begin January 1. You don't begin with a stock in a dividend. So to, re to recapitulate yeah. what you just said, you look at a given stock is a dividend, the dividend growth, the share buyback, and then the then what? Right. So really what we're doing is saying, what kind of profit can this company generate during the year and what do they do with that profit? So some really profitable companies have wasted all the money. They re they 
basically plow it back in growth and get a low return on invested capital. So you put a dollar in, get 80 cents back, you've wasted our money. All right, you're talking about financials too. You're saying that they're very cheap and we're about eight minutes away from the release of Morgan Stanley's uh, earnings. You like Morgan Stanley. Stanley. Uh, You like it more than Goldman Sachs, why? Yeah, very simply, Morgan Stanley and Goldman used to be pretty much the same kind of business. They're very different now. More than half of their business is wealth and investment management, which is a very sticky recurring business. And the margins for Morgan Stanley have actually been going up because they're managing costs. So it's recurring. The investment banking and trading are very volatile and you really don't even get paid for it. Even if you have a good quarter, the market kind of discounts it. So Goldman has really become a trading black box. That's why they, in the last couple quarters, they've tried to make it more transparent. They're moving into commercial, uh, actually consumer banking. But the question is, what is Goldman do that B of A and JP Morgan doesn't do. Whereas Morgan Stanley really is the king of wealth management. They are really good at this. David, you said last year was a valuation story. The financial sector really re-rated and re-rated higher. Do you see that as more sustainable than what you see elsewhere? Is that a sustainable re-rating by this market on a sector that's lagged for quite a while? Yes. And you know, the biggest test, unfortunately, is if we go into another recession. Because frankly, Financials have underperformed since the financial crisis. People are afraid that the next downturn, they go bankrupt again, and it may take till another downturn to prove that they're well capitalized. They are super capitalized right now. That's why they can return capital because they're regulated. So they can only return capital because they have so much cash sitting there to protect them. So these are really good. And Morgan Stanley is still at 11 times earnings with a 2.5% dividend. Define scale then. I mean, I mean, if, yeah. if there's a dearth of revenue and revenue growth, there's an urge to merge. I get yeah. all that. That's, you yeah. know, McKinsey yeah. 101. But define scale. Take that idea further. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes to like the lowest commodity product, which is an ETF, passive ETF, there's BlackRock. And then there's Vanguard. Nobody really can compete when you're giving stuff away like that. So then you have to be more specialized. And wealth management, there is... A that, scale issue. I dropped my crampons. <laughs> yeah. For those of you that heard that on television and radio, John was looking at my steel crampons yeah. I wear around Dava so, so and someone, dropped them there. Yeah. You know, they're the ones with the foreign spikes. You go yeah. up the street. Well, do you remember what there. happened to me last year? Yeah, I yeah. remember what happened to you. Walked out of the restaurant. Absolutely. Bang. Okay, let me translate right. that. Total, piano bar total face plant. Total <laughs> face plant. bar at 2 a.m. is what it was. You guys need cameras on Bruises you Bruises all, all up the side yeah. of my body. In surveillance. And, and Tom had to help me get back to Zurich. <laughs> all right, David. Yeah. One, one question. Back to scale. <laughs> back to scale. I want Not to ask mountains, you um, about don't Goldman poke Sachs. Me those things. Ken Leon was talking yeah. yesterday yeah. that he thinks Goldman Sachs needs to make yeah. a major purchase of yeah. an asset manager. Do you agree? Well, that would be a good strategy. There are other things they could do. They're actually huge in high net worth. They really are, but that's not big enough compared to the size of Goldman Sachs. So yes, that, that's the Morgan Stanley strategy, which has worked for Morgan Stanley. The question is, is yeah. Goldman's culture ready for that? Because they are a trading uh, I, and investment uh, banking uh, culture. Two days in a row, yeah. FTLEX. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in no words about it, FTLEX. I don't know if it's because yeah. it's Lionel Barber's last day there running the ship. <laughs> well, you think, he, you think he got angry in his final week? I, I don't know. Yeah. They, they really took Mr. Solomon to <laughs> yeah, test. Dead, we're yeah. speaking with Mr. Yeah. Solomon. Are we scheduled? I, I believe we're scheduled to yeah. do that next week. At the at piano some bar? Point. No, this is serious. The FT really uh, took Goldman well, Sachs a test. Well, you know, for them to run a consumer bank just. Is it going to work? It seems totally incongruous to Goldman Sachs. And really, the only way you're going to win business is under price. 
I mean, to get the the uh, Apple credit card, they probably right. are not making any money. Citibank didn't even make money doing the Costco Visa okay. card. So this is a scale business, and Goldman just doesn't have scale in consumer banking. David Pearl with us. Thank you so uh, much with Epic uh, Investments. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Right now, I've really been looking forward to this. Mary Lovely is going to join us. Uh, she's with the Peterson Institute and in Syracuse University, and she has written with precision about China and America. I'm going to steal some thunder from my colleague Lisa Bramo, who's Professor Lovely, uh, right now, which is on the enforceability of all we're doing. Let's do the history first. Has there ever been a history of enforceable or verification with China? Well, it's it's not only that, it's that this agreement is unprecedented. Uh, this is an agreement that's going to rely on the players who are, who are in the seats at the time. Uh, it's meant to be uh, stricter than previous uh, attempts at enforcement. As you say, we've had a longstanding problem with China on, it me- on its meeting its obligations in some areas, uh, particularly related to its accession to the WTO. Uh, and it's meant to have more teeth. Uh, the problem is, of course, is that it, the uh, escalation could happen very quickly. The end result would be the U.S. Uh, it, putting on new tariffs or returning to the old tariffs. And uh, at that point, China can simply notify that it's quit the agreement. So we have an agreement that has teeth, we have, but those teeth mean that it can bite very quickly. And I think the problem then for businesses is, do you go ahead and invest? Uh, a little bit like Lucy in the football. Well, this is the tough part, isn't it? Planting season for soybeans starts in a couple of months' time. What do the farmers in America do, Mary? I don't know. And interviews I've heard with farmers show that they don't know either. It's very tempting. Uh, my best guess, since I'm a pretty optimistic person, would be to go ahead and think that it's going to hold at least for the first year. Uh, but it's a problem because uh, farmers want to get in, into a rhythm with their cu- customers uh, and uh, they need the sales. So what do they do? Mary, you've got to hand it to the administration. They got China to the table and got them to agree to some big things. As you point out, though, follow through is the outstanding issue. Let's pick up on ag, on food, seafood product annually. The average import now has got to be 40 billion. Can they hit it? Do you think China can hit those kind of numbers? Well, there's been a little bit more wiggle room in the agreement now that we've seen it. For example, uh, they could buy Boeing planes, uh, have the sales recorded for this period, but not take delivery for, say, another two years. So there are some ways that they can hit this. Uh, One of the bigger problems is that we worry about uh, diversion from our trading partners and then friction with those partners uh, in energy, in ag, in manufacturing. So there does seem to be enough wiggle room. I think the Chinese uh, and the U.S. feel that they can hit these targets. Otherwise, uh, we wouldn't have seen the agreement, or at least that's what we hope. Uh, But, you know, something can happen. Mary, uh, people are pointing to what is being called a big win for Wall Street because one part of this, less publicized part of the trade deal, uh, was an acceleration of the opening of China's capital system. How significant do you think that is? 
I do think it's important, although, uh, you know, there are a lot of things we were pu- we were promised a long time ago. So in some sense, it's a win, but there's also been, you know, a lot of uh, losses as we've waited while Chinese, uh, particularly their fintech companies, have gained strength. So I think it shows that China has a certain uh, confidence that it can withstand the competition or, frankly, that it needs the products that uh, U.S. service companies want to sell. So I think it's important. Again, we have to see if they'll follow through. Mary, there's a criticism that's already coming saying, was it worth it? Was this deal enough to offset the damage of the uncertainty and the tariffs that were put into place in the two years as this unfolded? Uh, But going forward, there is a question, and President Trump perhaps can say, look, the U.S. is working with the European Union and Japan with the WTO to try to enforce some uh, sort of reduction in how much China subsidizes its industrial sector. Do you buy that? I mean, is that sufficient uh, to sort of move the ball forward regardless of phase two talks? Well, that was the best news of the week, actually. The U.S. was returning to working with its allies. That, that clearly is the way forward. Uh, industrial subsidies, as I said before, are a multilateral problem. Um, we need all, all hands on deck to try to reach an agreement within uh, the WTO or some other way. And, and it's not going to be easy because every country uses subsidies to some extent. How do you draw those lines? Mm-hmm. How do you adjudicate those lines? What happens when uh, countries uh, move over those lines? You have to remember that in the WTO, the retaliation is basically you get to put on tariffs. Whoopee. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a hard problem and it's one that clearly is going to escalate as as China and other countries try to develop emerging technologies, which are likely to be attached to very high profits. So there's going to be right. a lot of competition in a lot of spheres. Mary, thank you so much. Uh, Professor You're Lovely welcome. with the Peterson Institute and Syracuse University as well. Joining us now, BNP Paribas Senior Investment Strategist. Your message to clients this morning, Dan, what is it? Uh, Well, I think the thing to contrast is the risks and the concerns that we have this year compared to the same time at the beginning of last year and then valuations. A lot of the risks uh, honestly aren't all that different. We know we still need to worry about trade. We unfortunately still need to worry about Brexit. There's still questions about global growth, particularly in Europe. So that's really quite similar. The difference is now you've got the S&P 500 at uh, 18 and a half times earnings. You've got high yield bond spreads near 10-year lows, almost that for investment-grade bond spreads. So the challenge is finding attractive places to invest. The risk is still there, but the valuations aren't. I'm going to punt a question that John posed to me this morning. He said, what's the message from the bond market? Because right now you're seeing a flattening yield curve. It seems to be a bearish tilt amid six straight days of record highs. And if today's futures are any indication, this will be a seventh straight day of record highs. I'm wondering, is the message from the bond market inconsistent with what we're seeing in equities? Well, I think what we're seeing from bond markets recently is probably more the disappointment on inflation, you know, which is kind of the perpetual puzzle that we've had. You know, we know that we have unemployment rates at you know, multi-decade lows, but the pattern that you've seen across several sectors uh, for wages in America is that you've had a, a deceleration in the rate of wage appreciation. So there's still wage growth. It's just not as strong as it was. It's been going that way for about six months now. That's had a follow-through to CPI, which is disappointing. So I think that's probably 
What you're seeing more reflected in treasuries right now is the inflation component of your nominal yield, as opposed to the real rate component, which was really the story from last year. Uh, but we don't think this is going to persist. We're still expecting broadly stable rates around 1.8, give or take, for most of this year. There's a dissonance right now uh, between the consensus call for emerging markets, Europe, to outperform the U.S., given where we've seen uh, the rally go uh, in 2020, uh, and this sort of slowdown uh, that we're seeing, certainly in the U.S., but across the world. How do you sort of pair those ideas? Well, I think if you want to compare certainly U.S. versus Europe, you've got to distinguish between kind of broad tech, so including not just the tech sector, but Amazon, uh, Facebook, Google, all of that, uh, and the rest of the market. Uh, The rest of the market performed absolutely in line between the U.S. and Europe last year. There was no difference. They're both around 20 percent for the whole year. They just tracked each other. What really led to the U.S. outperformance was entirely the broad tech sector. So I think you need to have two separate allocations. What's your view on tech? Uh, and then the rest of it, it's harder to call a big difference between the right. U.S. and Europe, except for valuations where the U.S. is clearly much, much higher. You're just joining us, Daniel Morris, BMP Paribas Asset Management, where this is we look at the strategy for Dan Morris. What is the mood of institutions that didn't make 28 percent last year? If you're up 8 percent, you're up 12 percent, maybe you're on the efficient frontier underperforming. What's the sweat factor right now to catch up? Well, I think it's the same sentiment that a lot of retail investors have to be feeling. I mean, you know, you had uh, redemptions from equity funds throughout all of last year. Uh, you know, as the market was rising, you know, to be to be honest, that's a story that's been in place to some degree since 2009. Uh, but I think the, opt- the optimistic spin is that while a lot of that money did go into fixed income and, and obviously still did just fine, a much bigger share went into money markets. So if we do see any kind of correction in equities, which we wouldn't be at all surprised to see over the next couple of months, Uh, There is a lot of cash on the sidelines that we think is going to go back into equities, uh, but hopefully at more attractive valuations, because, again, the fundamental outlook is still quite strong. A potential catalyst on the horizon that may spark some nervousness in risk assets, Dan, is what happens with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet later this year. There's this big debate that is still ongoing. A lot of people in fixed income tell us it is not QE. Many people in the equity market act as if it is. I just wonder, Dan, if ultimately it doesn't matter what you think it is, the outcome is still the same. Risk assets are rallying, and there are many people out there listening to this program that thinks if the Fed backs off on the balance sheet, risk assets will get into trouble. What do you say about that? Well, you certainly think that was part of the story uh, that happened at the end of, of 2018 when it was one of many things that went wrong. I mean, you certainly had uh, the prospect of balance sheet runoff, and then you had the prospect of higher rates, and then you added some disappointment earnings results from Apple. You added the trade war, and that was enough to trigger it. I don't know at this point if, if I think a change in Fed policy in and of itself would be enough, but if you get a couple other little things that happen all at the same time, there could be an unpleasant repeat. And yesterday on Bloomberg Television and Radio, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan weighing in on that and basically saying uh, he does think the Fed should reduce it or at least pair the pace of its increase in balance sheet. This is this is sort of uh, the most tepid endorsement of pairing back uh, the recent program because he's worried about asset bubbles. But it does raise a question, you know, what is the sort of uh, perverse incentive that gets created as the Fed reinflates at a time when the economy is still but, doing but okay? This is really important distinction, Daniel Morris. Lisa says as the Fed reinflates, is there any evidence they can reinflate? Well, if you want to see that evidenced in, in higher core CPI inflation, you know, even getting back to a 2% average, 2% average CPI inflation, you know, it's hard to see that happening. I mean, remember back when you started QE, all the scare stories that you read about how that this was going to set off hyperinflation and 
clearly that did not happen. Yeah. So even after the trillions that you've had purchased in the U.S. and in, in England, in Europe, and in Japan, you know, inflation right. is nowhere to be seen. So it's just really hard to see, you know, any change that the Fed can make having that big of an impact. Daniel Morris, one final question, if we could. What metric matters to you right now when you go to the Bloomberg or when you're writing one of your 20-page jewels for BNP Paribas? Is it price to sales? Is it price to cash flow? Is it some enterprise value ratio? What ratio matters right now to Daniel Morse? I think what's concerning right now is pretty much any ratio you look at is one to one and a half standard deviations above the level yep. that we've seen over the last 10 years. So I think it's, it's a fact that everything is kind of giving you the same signal. Things are really pricey. As long as yep. the world is perfect, that's okay. But we suspect it's not. Daniel Morris, thank you so much for the briefing. With Thanks, Dan. Very about this morning. What's key there to his great mathematics is one and a half standard deviations under math is not a point of panic. It's a point of business as usual. Changes with these reports whatsoever. No. So should I buy? A, should I start buying? I, Apple I don't, this this doesn't change anything for anybody. This just kind of pushes back the big debate over the consumer. The next crack you see in the data, the bears will pile back on again and say the cracks are back. Yeah. Futures up the 11, moment. John. We're doing okay. Donna Peterson joining us now, City Global Economist, to weigh in on the data. Donna, great to have you with us. Weigh in, please. Sure. I think these data are absolutely uh, amazing for the U.S. Uh, low uh, initial jobless claims, meaning that. Very few people getting laid off. It, it, it marries very well with the data we're seeing uh, in aggregate with respect to payrolls. Um, we do expect payrolls will slow a little bit over the course of the year, but still average 135 for the year. With retail sales, again, uh, as you were just saying, yes, we do see some cannibalization of, of brick-and-mortar sales because of non-store retail sales. But still in all, most people are still going physically to places to buy things and items and services. And so overall, that's really great. And we're still expecting the consumer to contribute to the economy, looking at an average 2.5% growth in consumption for this year, and for the first quarter, 2.4%. If you dig into the numbers, uh, the retail sales ex-auto month over month beat significantly, actually. They were up 0.7% versus an estimate of 0.5%, similar uh, with ex-auto and gas. Uh, when you look at that category, which sectors are picking up the slack for the auto industry, which continues to see weakness? Well, certainly we saw really strong sales in, in clothing, um, general merchandise. Uh, people are still going out to restaurants and eating and drinking. So oh, really? there's really a lot of strength here. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at retail. Where was it weak? I mean, I see on the end of Scott Lamon's story, Dana, I see that uh, department stores are negative 5.5% year over year. You do that two years in a row, that's a problem, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm just looking at a string of negatives for that, and it's not surprising that these department stores are losing momentum. We've been hearing about that for several years now, and yes, they are losing market share to the non-store retailers. But I think also when you look at the non-store uh, number, it's a mix, right? So you'll have some brick and mortar stores that have online yeah. sales and they'll just kind of mix them all together. <laughs> you know, John, this is important because there used to be an academic discussion about should an institution on J.C. Panay at $5 a share. We're under a buck. Panay. That's the marketing Panay. campaign they should be doing. With Target. It's Target Come on, it's well. an American yeah, I institution. Oh, I, I mean, it's an American institution and it's been in this slow... Is there any equivalent... go to a J.C. Penney? A long time ago. John... John, is there, has there been is there 
any equivalent London or UK institution to JCPenney. Yeah, there's a couple of struggling department stores. Uh, House of Fraser, Debenhams, a couple of names for you in the United Kingdom that have really struggled over the last decade or so. Just not the same shopping experience. Yeah. You go into some of these stores, Tom, and you're just not treated very well. The people in there Correct. look like you don't, they don't want you there, so why should you be there? In fact, that applies also to luxury on, on, on Fifth Avenue. Should I go on a rant because it really annoys me? Well, evidently, we don't. You know, we're when not going to When you go into a high-end store yes. on Fifth Avenue Carry on, and you walk in and you're interested in buying something because you've saved your money up yeah. and they look at you like you shouldn't be there. What is that about? It happens constantly. What is that about? It's, it is... Why do they think that's okay? It is principles of these firms in America not reading the Riot Act to the help. It's absolutely Wait, ridiculous. Oh, okay, no, I, all right, I, I all right. personally observe we're, we're talking this. about retail sales. We're not talking about Fifth Avenue for the most of it. And Dana, um, you know, there is a question. And I, I mean, look, I agree with you. It is service. But then there is a question. What are these retailers doing wrong? If retail sales are actually picking up, why are we seeing the likes of Kohl's, JCPenney, to Tom's point, and uh, Target? I've got a great idea. The yes. next time you go into a department store, yes. say Bloomingdale's, talk to me like you want me there. That, that, would, that would help. I might actually want to spend some money in your, in your department store. Well, how behind are they, basically? You know, and, and, and that's sort of, you know, how much do they have to invest? How much do they have to pay people more? How much do they have to over, you know, restock? Well, also I, I don't want to get lost walking around the store. I don't want to wait 20 minutes to get an elevator. Okay. Well, it's it's to, easy Dana, to address. It's not difficult. I want to go to Dana Peterson on this with Citigroup. We're thrilled that she's with us this morning. Dana, this talks about the labor component. And the question is, can retail continue forward in a fully employed America? I mean, labor, labor and retail is a beginning job across all of America. Can they get the bodies forward to keep brick and mortar retail going or is it done? Well, I think an important thing that we should look at is big box stores. They've actually done extremely well, and they just exploded in terms of the number of them and also their sales right alongside of your non-store retailers, and that's because they are giving you the discounted price. And so we should look at retail as a more differentiated market and understand that you know certainly um, when you're looking at labor, you need to have things that attract labor, such as benefits. Um, and certainly if, if your big box stores are not able to do, I'm sorry, if your department stores are able to do that, then you're not going to get the best quality of labor. Well, but this goes actually to John's service. point. And I was, and I, I don't mean to downplay your point because it is important uh, to give service. I'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build on it. Basically, uh, how difficult is the situation amid this massive shift in retail where stores brick and mortar have to be investing substantially in their online businesses to compete with Amazon while also uh, paying up for staff, while also making sure that the actual experience is something special and exciting and not necessarily uh, depressing on Fifth Avenue for John Farrow. Well, we can look at this as creative destruction. There are always going to be industries. So if we think about the whaling industry, that no longer exists, right? Um, And the world still moves forward. So So Fifth Avenue is the whaling industry? (laughs) No comment there. Um, but certainly uh, uh, within the retail sector, there must, again, w- there's differentiation. You have luxury, you have your big box, you have your uh, discount discounters, which are also doing very well. Um, and then you have your brick and mortar mm-hmm. big uh, department stores that aren't doing so well. And there are different aspects of this. And certainly if you right. are a retailer, you have to consider all these elements. Dana, thank you so much. Dana Peters. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.